Today's scripture is from the book of Esther, chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. On that day, King Ahazus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king. For Esther had told what he was to her. Then the king took off his signet ring, which he had given to Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. So Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at her, his feet, weeping and pleading with him to avert the evil design of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. The king held out the golden scepter to Esther, and Esther rose and stood before the king. She said, If it pleases the king, and if I have won his favor, and if, it, and if the thing seems right before the king and I have his approval, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote giving orders to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming on my people, or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. On October 14th, 1987, an 18-month-old girl named Jessica McClure was playing with a group of children in her aunt's backyard when she fell into an abandoned well, becoming wedged in a narrow crevice 22 feet below the surface. As rescue operations began, reporters and television crews descended on the town of Midland, Texas, where Jessica's teenage parents were struggling to eke out a living. Glued to their television, people around the world learned that baby Jessica, as she became known, spent her time underground sleeping, crying, singing songs, and calling for her mother. They watched as emergency workers piped fresh air down the well, burrowed through solid rock to create a second shaft, a rescue shaft, and more than 58 hours after her ordeal began, they hauled the frightened but alert toddler out of her cramped, dark prison. The photographer, Scott Shaw, won a Pulitzer Prize for capturing the moment on film. You can see that picture. Despite undergoing multiple surgeries and losing part of her foot due to circulation loss, Jessica went on to live a happy childhood and grow into a productive and, and a beautiful adult, sheltered as she was from her parents by the media circus that accompanied her rescue. About a minute after taking off from New York LaGuardia's airport on January 15, 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 collided with one of aviation industry's most threatening foes, a flock of geese. Crippled by the bird strike, both engines lost power and went quiet, fo forcing Captain Chesley Burnett Sullenberger III to make an emergency landing. When air traffic controllers learned Sullenberger uh, it instructed him to go to a nearby airport. The pilot calmly informed him that he was unable to reach the runway. We're gonna be in the Hudson, he said. Then he told the 150 terrified passengers and five crew members on board to brace for impact. 90, second later, 90 seconds later, he glided the Airbus 320 over the George Washington Bridge onto the chilly surface of the Hudson River, where it splashed down midway between Manhattan and New Jersey. As flight attendants ushered, 
passengers into life jackets through emergency exits and onto the waterlogged wings of the bobbing jet, you can see in that picture, a flotilla of commuter ferries, sightseeing boats, and rescue vessels hastened to the scene. One survivor suffered two broken legs, others were treated for minor injuries or hypothermia, but no fatalities occurred during the incident, which Governor David Patterson dubbed the miracle on the Hudson. After walking up and down the aisles twice to ensure that there was a complete evacuation, Sullenberger, or Captain Sully as he came to be known, who was a former fighter pilot with decades of experience, he was the last to leave the sinking plane. His heroic actions propelled him into the public eye and earned him a slew of honors, including an invitation to Barack Obama's presidential inauguration a few days later and resolutions of praise from the U.S. Congress. If you are at least 40 years old, I suspect that you remember both of these incidents. If you aren't yet 40 years old, maybe when you think of dramatic rescues, what comes to mind are those 33 Chilean miners that were trapped for 69 days in 2010 and rescued. Or maybe when you think of rescue stories, you have a personal story, like Rebecca did, or, or one from your family. I know two women whose father was rescued from a burning hotel when he was a small child. He was thrown out of a window to rescuers who were waiting below, one of very few survivors of the tragedy. It's a central story to their family, told and retold year after year, passed down to every new generation. We are captivated by rescue stories. The most dramatic ones, like these I've retold now, blanket the news. They hold our attention for weeks. They get told and retold in books and in movies. We love rescue stories. They inspire us about the good things that people can do when we come together. They remind us that no matter how dark and how dire a situation seems, the miraculous is still possible. We need rescue stories. We need to remember and recount them to fuel our hope, to fuel our endurance in hard times. We need rescue stories, which is why we need the book of Esther. We're in our final week here of this sermon series considering the story of Esther, this compact little novella that we have in the Old Testament. Now, I've already told you about how the book of Esther is unique because it doesn't ever mention the name of God. But another unusual thing about it is it also does not ever reference any other book of the Bible or name another character in all of the scriptures. The story never talks about Abraham or Jacob or Moses, never mentions a prophet or King David, and the book of Esther is never mentioned anywhere else in the scripture. The name Esther, it appears nowhere else in the Bible except the story that bears her name. Now seriously, you guys, this is really weird. Because <laughs> the Bible is always cross-referencing itself, pulling on characters and themes and stories from one book to another to make its points and tell its story about God. But Esther, Esther's just kind of out there alone. This story set in the exile from Jerusalem when the leaders were in Babylon for 70 years and the book is just kind of wedged in there between Nehemiah and Job and never mentioned again in all of Scripture. It makes it easy to pass over, I think. But as we've seen during this series, it's a book that tells us a lot, shows us a lot about human nature. 
It tells us about what it means to be brave in hard circumstances. And at the end, it is a rescue story. It reminds us that God rescues God's people. I want to say again, I said this the first week, but it is a really short book, nine chapters. It's easy to read in one sitting. And if you haven't done that in the last three weeks, I just want to encourage you this week to do it. Sit down and read Esther all the way through. If you have kids at home, you could even read it like I talked about Jewish people read it out loud during the festival of Purim. You know, they, they read it out loud and the listeners boo and they stomp whenever a bad guy's name like Haman is mentioned. And then they cheer and they clap whenever Mordecai or Esther are mentioned. Well, actually, you could do that even if you don't have kids at home. Maybe Matt and I will have a dramatic reading of the book of Esther this afternoon at home. Now, when we left the story last week, Esther had this dramatic dinner with the king and Haman, and she asked the king to save her people, and she managed to get Haman, the king's official, the guy who wanted to kill all the Jewish people in the kingdom, Esther managed to get him hanged on his own gallows. And Haman's death certainly helped Esther and Mordecai, but it did not yet save the people across the kingdom. It seems that in this kingdom, once an edict went out, signed by the king's signet ring, as the order to kill Jews on this one particular day had done, the king could not reverse it. This is a pretty stupid way to run a kingdom, if you ask me. But nobody asked me. I think there always ought to be room for people to change their minds, for people to atone for their mistakes. But that's not the setup here. The king, immediately, he gave all the powers that Haman used to have, all the privileges, he gave all that to Mordecai immediately. But that former edict about killing the Jewish people on one particular day, that was still in effect. All the king could do was allow Mordecai to issue another order in the king's name to try and counteract the first. So Mordecai did. He promptly sent out letters to every province across the kingdom, allowing that on that same day, the day that they were to be attacked, Jews could assemble and defend themselves. They could defend their lives. They could destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force or any people or province that might attack them with their children and women and to plunder their goods on a single day. That's what the edict said. So they were allowed to arm and defend themselves for that one day. Would it be enough? Would the Jews be able to withstand and fight off their enemies? The story gives us a hint when it says that many of the people... Uh, of the country professed to be Jews all of a sudden because fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. So things are looking kind of good for the Jewish people after this second edict, and it does in fact turn out well for them. On the appointed day, they push back against all the enemies that the scripture uh, that had come for them, and the scripture says in Susa, the capital, they killed 500 people, including 10 sons of Haman. And in the rest of the provinces all over the country, they killed 75,000 of those who hated them, it says, but they did not touch the plunder. Just a moment ago when I read that edict that Mordecai sent out, which specifically said that the Jews could plunder their enemies on that one day, meaning they could take their property and their money, they could take their livestock, whatever they wanted as victory of their spoils, but then, in reporting on the actual events of that day of battle, three different times the scripture says that they did not take the plunder. The Jews did not take the plunder. They, they did not enrich themselves. 
It's a way to reinforce that the violence they committed really was a matter of self-defense and not motivated by greed. At the end of the story then, we read specific instructions about how the Jewish people from that point forward should remember and celebrate the rescue of the people from the evil plot of Haman. In chapter 9 it says, Mordecai recorded all these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, enjoining them that they should keep the 14th, month of, 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th month of the same day, year by year, as the days on which the Jews gained relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday. They should make them days of feasting and gladness, sending gifts of food to one another and presents to the poor. And so the story of Esther becomes a rescue story, told and retold, celebrated and remembered for something like the last 2,400 years. Century after century, it is a story that has reminded the Jewish people and later Christian people like us that one of the things we know about God is God is a rescuer. When God's people are in trouble, when disaster is looming, God intervenes and God rescues. Now, the story of Esther is not perfect. I wouldn't want you to leave this sermon series thinking that. It has a lot of moments that might make us uncomfortable. It's not exactly an anthem for women's rights because Esther accomplishes what she does by entering the king's harem. The story leaves us with questions about the use of violence and revenge and what it means to confront our enemies. But even with all that, it has this clear and this constant claim that God steps in to empower the powerless, God empowers the powerless, and God rescues God's people. And even though Esther isn't tied directly to any other book in the Bible, with this theme, the story very much falls in line with the witness we see about God throughout the scriptures. From the front cover of the Bible to the back, there are dozens and dozens of stories that show us God is one who rescues. Think about Noah in the ark, Moses leading the people through the Red Sea, David confronting Goliath, Daniel in the lion's den, Mary when she meets up with her cousin Elizabeth after finding out that they're both pregnant. Mary sings this beautiful song about how the powerful have been brought low and the lowly have been lifted up. Jesus, he talks about how the first will be last and the last will be first, and then he tells that story about how a shepherd leaves 99 sheep so that he can go out and find the one sheep who's lost. When Jesus told that story, he echoed Ezekiel 39 or 34, sorry. It says, For thus says the Lord, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As shepherds seek out their flocks when they are among the scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places to which they've been scattered. Or if we read through the Psalms, we will find the theme of God as rescuer again and again, like Psalm 107 that says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they had quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. I don't know how clearly you have felt the need lately to be rescued. 
But if you have, if you have at all lately felt stuck, felt lost, felt turned sideways, or worse, felt like you were at the very end of your rope, the news that God is a rescuer is very good news. And even if you don't feel those things today or you haven't felt them in the last week, chances are you're going to feel them sometime in the days to come. And when you do, I want you to remember that God is a God who rescues. When we're in trouble, God wants us to turn to God. When we cry out, God promises to hear us. When we're lost, God promises to find us. When we're in need, God promises to send help our way. It doesn't mean that God magically fixes all our problems. Remember, not one miraculous thing happened in the whole book of Esther. But God was at work. And the people wound up with the things that they needed in order to survive. God doesn't always work through miracles. And God's rescuing doesn't mean that we're going to miss out on all pain. But it does mean that even when the biggest storm is wailing around us, God is with us. And God will provide the things we need to survive. God can and God will bring us to the other side. Even if that other side, that safe side, is the place that God has prepared for us in eternity. Remember, God has rescued us not just for this moment. God has rescued us in an everlasting way. God, through Jesus Christ, has rescued us from the finality of death. God will rescue us forevermore. Now, chances are, this week ahead, it's going to be a different kind of Thanksgiving week that you, than you would have if you just got to choose and things were normal. Things are not normal in our world right now. We're in a hard spot right now as a country, as a state of Nebraska, right here in the Omaha area. Even if COVID has not touched your life directly, and it has for most of us, even if it hasn't touched your life directly in the last weeks, you know that our hospitals are almost full, our medical staff are strung out and overworked, and our daily counts of COVID cases are still going up uh, and are gonna keep going up. It needs to give us pause. I get it. It is a hard thing to swallow that here in the ninth month of the pandemic, we are still struggling, still making hard choices, still missing out on important things and time with the people that we love the most. I get it. As much as I am happy about this new camera system, I would so much rather see your faces in this sanctuary right now than be staring at camera number two. But remembering the story of Esther, this week, I want to encourage you to be present to those moments of grief, to remember that, and to reach out to God, God who rescues us. I'm serious about it. Sometime this week, take just a moment, set aside, to have some time of prayer. Either take a walk, or sit in your favorite quiet place, or grab a journal you can write in, and pray about the things that you are missing Pray about the things that are weighing on you. Pray about the places you're feeling stuck. Pray about the ways that you're feeling alone. And then ask God for help. 
This is what we do when we know that God is our rescuer. Ask God for help, knowing that that doesn't mean God is going to magically transport all of your loved ones to your dinner table. Still, ask God for help. Ask God for help to find joy and satisfaction and gratitude, even in these hard days. Ask God to show you what is good and what is full of life around you. Ask God for help. And trust that God, our God who rescues, will answer. Thanks be to God. Amen.